0: Habits are one of those things that they're kind of the glue and uh, maybe the gasoline, actually, that helps you implement sales tactics, strategies, all that kind of stuff that you hear. And a good example of that would be, you know, cold calling. We talked about that a lot on this podcast. You can have all of the techniques in the world, but if you don't have really good habits around making this a consistent activity, it's it's not going to get you anywhere, right? And before we get into habits today, I'm, I'm super excited for our guest, Andrew Sykes, he is a, he's done a lot of things, honestly, but he runs a company called Habits at Work, and he talks all about habits and how it relates to sales. But before we get to that, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name is Jason Day. this is Outbound Squad. What we're here to do is help reps and sales leaders turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're prospecting to get meetings, if you're closing deals, running discovery calls, doing demos, all that kind of stuff. We talk about all of that and much more. And today with Andrew, we're going to do a couple of things. Um, Andrew, he's got this model called the Four Powers Model, and essentially what we're going to do is talk about how to build new habits. So if you've wanted to build any habits around prospecting, habits around listening, habits around asking, you know, good questions, habits around dealing with objections. Any of that kind of stuff, we're going to talk about his four-part process. One is, you know, picking the habit. Two, replacing habits. Three, understanding that your habits own you, and it's really important to look at the environment, people, and the systems. So, setting yourself up for success. Uh, success, excuse me. And then we're also going to talk about how mindset drives habits. So, this was a super fun one. I'm such a geek about habits so i'm excited for you to take a listen to it before we get to the interview with andrew make sure to subscribe to the show leave us an honest rating on spotify or apple podcasts helps more uh, folks get uh, access and see this thing and so we can continue getting on great guests that's all i got let's get to the interview So, uh, one thing I always get excited to really geek out about with, uh, with folks that I don't get a chance to talk to many people about is habits right. and, uh, from what I can tell and from our conversation, you kind of like built a whole business <laughs> around habits. Um, do you remember like, where did this fascination come from? Were you thinking about this stuff? Like when you were a kid, teenager, like when did you really get interested in, in habits and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. About 15 years ago. Because we've done a lot of work in our history in the area of health and wellness. And Mm -hmm. although that's unrelated to sales, what's at the core of both of those problems, you might say, is that people don't do what they know to do. Mm -hmm. And it's a really hard thing to get people to change their lifestyle. So my initial interest in habits was to help people figure out how to be healthy, happy, and financially secure by practicing the habits that produce those outcomes rather yeah. than, for example, in the case of healthcare, seeking treatment. So it's and similar for sales. I've, I've come to the view many years ago that sales is an embodied skill. It's more about what you do than it is about what you know.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. I uh, I know you work with a lot of salespeople and run a lot of workshops and do all that kind of stuff. Getting people, it's. let me kind of backtrack a little bit, actually, because you probably will relate. It's really, I find it funny to, you do a training or a workshop, you talk about a new technique and people get really excited about it and they start trying to kind of do it. But what they end up doing, like if I train on cold calling, for example, we talk about how to maybe do a permission-based opener. And when they do the exercise in the workshop, they literally revert back to what they were doing before without even thinking about it. And we were just talking about it like two minutes prior to that. What, what is that? Like, what's, what's going on there?
1: Well, that's in part the power of the inertia of habits that we carry on yeah. doing what we've always done unless we do something very deliberate to change our habits. Yeah. But I think it's also something I refer to as the, I've got this trap. Yeah. Which is what happens when we're, when we're learning new things is if we understand them intellectually, we say to ourselves, I've got this. I understand this. And we confuse that feeling with being able to be good at doing something. So, you know, someone has a particular skill at cold calling, say not very much, and then you come along and give them a framework and an approach to permission asking or permission based openings. And they say to themselves, I've got this. But what they don't have is that skill embodied in them. So when it comes time to the doing, they'll revert to what their body and brain knows to do rather than what they've just learned. And there's a big chasm between knowing what to do and being able to do what you know. You know, Maya Angelou has this beautiful quote, which is, do your best until you know better. And when you know better, you'll do better. It sounds so wise. I just think it's completely wrong because at least for me, and I think the same is true for many of your listeners and humans in general, Knowing better or knowing what to do and doing differently are two completely different things.
0: No, totally. So before we get into some of the sales stuff, you talk a lot about trust too. Let's start with habits and how do you, if we kind of step back with habits, is there a framework that you use? I know there's like habit loops and stuff like that that people talk about. Is there a framework that we can think about if we have a habit that is not serving us in sales and we want to change it? Um, is there a framework or process that we can kind of think about to do that?
1: Yes. In fact, in our behavioral research lab, Brat Lab, we developed a model for changing habits called Mm -hmm. the four powers model. And there's lots to say about it, but there's a, a couple of things up front that are already sort of myths that you need to overcome to be successful in changing your habits. And the first of which is, and I say it like it's a rule of physics, It's really just an observed rule, which is human beings struggle to change more than one habit at a time. And for most of us, we're like, well, I had a rough New Year, so now I want to get into exercise and change my drinking habits and, I don't know, start doing yoga and six other things. Simultaneous efforts to adopt multiple new habits almost always end in failure. So I would say golden rule number one is Just pick one habit to adopt. And the counter or the, the partner to that, I would call it golden rule number two, is you can't create a new habit unless you simultaneously get rid of, destroy, or remove a habit or, dare I say, a vice from your day. Because habits live in us in the time and space of our day You can think of almost like our average day is mostly pretty much the same as yesterday. We're creatures of habits. We know that, but your habits are like a garden in your brain and in your day. And there are some good habits, the roses and some bad habits, the weeds, but there's no space to add something new in until you pluck something else out. So it's always a good idea to ask like, what can I take out to create the space to put in my new habit and I always encourage people, since you have to take something out, you might as well take something out that doesn't serve you. you know, take out Instagram stro- scrolling and add in more cold calling. You'll get a double hit <laughs> because you'll spend less time on <laughs> useless brain candy and more time closing deals. Yeah. But, and then the, the third thing, which is my favorite thing to say, is humans don't actually have habits habits have human beings. Okay. And I know that's a weird way of saying it, but I say it that way to make it clear that it turns out that mostly our habits are a response to the environments we find ourselves in. For example, if you go to a library, you'll be quiet and respectful and careful. And then Three hours later, you go to a bar and you're yelling and screaming and telling stories and you're almost a different person. But no one would call you irrational or erratic. They would simply say, Jason behaves appropriately in a library and in a bar because the habits of being quiet are encoded in a library and the habits of being boisterous are encoded in a bar. So it's worth thinking about, like, where do my habits live And they live in the systems under which we operate. For example, time blocking, cold calling. They live in the physical spaces that we work in. For example, do you have a phone and do you have your computer there? Do you have everything you need in front of you? Or is it all over the place and your desk is a mess? And they also live in the people around us. We tend to catch habits from other people. Habits are very infectious because we often do what we see other people doing. So one of the downsides of the epidemic is as we started working from home, we gave up the opportunity to be shoulder to shoulder with other sellers, catching good habits from each other. And then last but not least, the area where your habits are encoded, I've, said, I've mentioned systems, physical spaces, other people or the social context, as I call it, is in your mindset. So for example, if you have the mindset, I can't sing, well, you're not going to have singing or singing practice in your daily rhythm. If you have the mindset, I'm no good at cold calling, guess what? You're not going to be doing cold calling as a habit. So that's part of what I, I call the contexts of habits. Contexts are in the background of your life. They highly influence how you behave in the foreground, and you don't usually notice the influence. So most people say, well, I I failed at this new habit because I ran out of willpower. But what they don't notice is they were in an environment where willpower had to be extraordinary to overcome a bad system, the wrong tools and materials, maybe working next to someone who's got bad habits and a terrible mindset.
0: Yeah. The third one, what I wrote down was habits own you. It reminds me of Fight Club. <laughs> that's, that's what, what I, I thought of when you're sharing that. <laughs> Um, I want to circle back to, so we have basically number one was like pick one habit. Number two, what I kind of got from that is like replace habits, look for something to replace number three, there was the environment, people, systems, and there was like this mindset component to number four. If we look at number one, the picking one habit where I could see people getting stuck is how do I choose the right one to work on the one that's going to have the domino effect? What's your advice around picking the right habit? making sure it's something that will you know, have this domino effect. And then also just, I don't know, some people might feel like that's not enough. And there might be almost like a self-compassion aspect to this where I don't, I don't know what your experience is. A lot of the salespeople I work with are very hard on themselves. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, let's start at the, at the
1: end of your question. Mm-hmm. I actually find relief in the yeah. prescription, just pick one thing. Next month or next quarter, you can pick something else because what I've seen is people who start the year with five goals, five habits to adopt, they've usually given up by mid-January. They suffer from the the what-the-hell effect, and they go back to doing what they've always done. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a year, and they've made no change, whereas the people who take what feels like a slow approach, which is maybe this quarter I'll focus on one habit, next quarter on the next habit – by the time they get to the end of the year, they've got four new well developed skills and habits, and they're streets ahead of everyone else. But it does raise this question that you began with, which is like, well, if I only get to pick one, which one is the one that's going to make the biggest difference? And I like to think of it through the lens of the sales process. So I would encourage people to pick something that makes a difference right at the beginning of the sales process, and therefore, has a domino effect along the sales process. And that gets us onto the subject of trust because I happen to think that the biggest single problem we face in sales is that salespeople have a reputation of being untrustworthy. And as a result, prospects put us in a trust hole, which takes months and months to climb out of, We tell ourselves trust takes time to build, but all the research says trust is built in minutes, not months, provided you're in the habit of introducing yourself with an origin story that demonstrates you have a why, a purpose, other than to make money, sell your customers something they don't need or don't want, or otherwise interrupt their lives and annoy them you know, most, most salespeople that I listen to on calls, when they get that chance to introduce themselves, they blow that first impression by reinforcing the stereotype, I'm a salesperson. You know, they may say, hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm the head of sales at Habits at Work, and I can't wait to talk to you today about your problem. And prospects yeah. are thinking, yeah, here he comes. I'm just going to put up my defenses and yeah. for months watch how Andrew operates and see whether he's trustworthy. Versus sharing a story, for example, I might say, Jason, I'm thrilled to meet you. As you may or may not know, I've spent three decades in sales. But about five years ago, I realized that unless we address the trust problem, all the tips, techniques, and tricks of sales are not only useless, but may be worse for us. And so I've committed my life to making salespeople the most trustworthy profession on the planet. Honored to meet you. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So in that little story, it gives some credibility. It shows you why I do what I do and Mm -hmm. answers the question prospects are always asking, which is, who are you and what do you want? And unless we tell them that, they're going to assume, ah, you're a salesperson and what do you want is commission. That comes from a sale you're gonna make, whether I need the product or not. And that's an unfair assessment of salespeople, but it's what our reputation carries as a unfortunate side effect.
0: Yeah, there's so much that comes to mind there with this like habit building with that. Let me know what you think of this. What comes to mind for me when you share that is there's there's this habit of trust building through storytelling that's almost like one layer of it is it's still something that I'm working on getting better at just (laughs) teaching sales is really awesome because it also exposes gaps that you have to right where you got to be like okay I tell this thing to people all the time around storytelling and like am I doing it you know and um, that was a big thing for me probably three or four years ago where I was like I really need to get better at this and it was storytelling was like the kind of keystone habit how can I Do this when we do outbound, how can we incorporate storytelling about ourselves, our clients' stories, et cetera? Is that how you kind of look at this where it's like, what is a skill like storytelling or the mindset of thinking about the prospect? In this case, that's, that's almost like a keystone habit right there is like just taking a second to think about something from the prospect's perspective instead of our perspective is that how, like how micro, I guess, does the habit get? Maybe that's, that's my question. Yeah.
1: It's a great question because I think the smaller the habit, the better chance you have of adopting it. Yeah. Because sometimes people talk about a habit when it's not really a habit. It's a compound set of moves that are comprised of a bunch of habits. But yeah. if we sort of break up a habit into its respective parts, habits begin with a different mindset. So let's take as an example, the habit of listening with empathy, that habit, which is known to build trust, deepen relationships, frankly, give you more insights as a seller than you would otherwise get. I think it starts with the mindset. My job when I'm listening is to feel what my prospect feels, not to fix the problem that they've got. And, you know, there's the old stereotype of particularly men trying to fix what their spouses, stereotypically women, say, here's my problem. And I just wanted you to hear me out and we're busy trying to fix the problem. I don't think it's a gender thing, actually. I think as sellers, we are well-educated. We know how to solve these problems. We may have seen this customer's problems a hundred times before and actually have the right thing for them. But I've discovered that, Prospects are never open to your suggestion for what to do until they've had the privilege of you listening to their statement of the problem. So I like to say the habit of listening begins with the mindset. My job is to feel, not fix. And then a habit itself has some component parts. There's some knowledge behind the habit. There's the skill of practicing the habit And then there's the frequency and fidelity with which you practice the habit. So in listening, a piece of knowledge that is useful is great listeners begin by being silent to give themselves the opportunity to listen. Another piece of knowledge is great listeners speak second rather than first so that they can hear other people's perspectives, synthesize that and share it later. And there's a bunch of other pieces of knowledge. Well, that's great. But do you have the skill to close your mouth and quiet your mind to really give yourself the opportunity to pay attention? And then finally, when it comes down to it, now you're in a meeting and you are hearing a problem that you can fix. Do you have the discipline to choose silence rather than, ah, boy, do we have a solution for you? when it's just not the moment. And so that that question of, do you practice the habit at the right frequency with the right fidelity? And of course, there is a time to talk and respond and fix the problem, because that's what we're charged to do as sellers. But one of the things I like to say is, I, I believe that customers decide that they want to buy from you before they decide if or what they want to buy from your company. And that decision to trust you is much more about whether you listen, whether you ask great questions, whether you tell great stories, and frankly, leading with your product, vomiting up everything you know about the industry and your solution generally doesn't get the job done,
0: doesn't build trust, it destroys it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the... I always talk to people about this. It's uh, I don't know what your experience has been with this, but... I've been on the receiving end of quite a few sales calls in the history of our business. And I can think of like two where I actually enjoyed the conversation, not being picky about the techniques or anything like that, where the person I felt like, oh, they're actually trying to figure out what it is that I want help with right now and and trying to understand my situation. And that as a like keystone habit, like really listening to understand and like summarizing and like restating back to the prospect to make sure that they also, okay, this person gets what I'm trying to accomplish right. is uh oh, man. It's just everything. So, so knowledge, skill, practice. So basically do I know this Do I have the ability to execute it? And I'm like, can I be consistent yeah. uh, with it? So. The skill at the
1: rot right Tom for the rot. Right job to be done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if I'm thinking about the habit, um, like with trust building, for example, if we use that as an example, again, is it something that we kind of roll out in stages? So we pick kind of like the beginner version of this, maybe the beginner version is just reminding myself before I hop on a sales call. All right, Jason, you're here to listen to Andrew. Let's start by Making a quick introduction about why we're doing this, and then make sure to ask him a question versus like talking. Is that kind of uh, how you think about rolling something out for the first time and and, and what's the best way if we're tackling something big like trust building? Yeah How do you recommend rolling it out and like adding stuff to it, and how do we how do we think about that?
1: Yeah. I like to think of it along the timeline of a relationship with a prospect. Mm. And I slice the timeline in some cases very, very thinly. For yeah. example, all the research suggests that people make an assessment of whether or not you're trustworthy before you even open your mouth. So <laughs> That's the crazy. very simplest habit you can practice is when you get on a Zoom call or you meet someone in person, smile with smile. a genuine smile and make eye contact. Which in our case, technology makes it really difficult to make eye contact means I've got to look in my camera because if Mm -hmm. I look at your picture, you're looking at the top of my head. Yeah. So it's the discipline of just remembering what do I actually look like on the other side of Zoom technology Mm -hmm. and reminding yourself that when you smile at someone and they smile back, it sends a signal to their brain, I'm smiling at you. It must be because I like and trust you and you're yeah. making eye contact, it must be that you have nothing to hide. So that's my like, habit for the first two seconds of meeting someone. My second slice of that is, well, what usually happens is we say, hi, Jason, how are you? And you say, fine, thanks, Andrew, how are you? And I say, fine, thanks. And maybe we have some small talk about the weather or where you're based. Yeah. I think that's terribly wasted retail space in a conversation. And it fails to bring to the surface some things we have in common that make us more the same and less different. Because we tend to trust people the more we feel like they're like us. So instead of asking, how are you? My second habit is asking what I call an interesting connection question. Jason, what's the, the best book you've ever read and why? Or tell me about a vacation you went on since you, when you were a kid that Like you still think about to this day. And a lot of sellers say to me, but Andrew, that's A, too personal. B, it's awkward. I've only just met someone. And so my response is, you're right. It's a risk. Here's how you could de-risk that, is you can share a story that makes the question sensible. So I could say, Jason, I've, I've just come off the beach. I hope you don't mind. I'm in a work shirt, but I'm in shorts down below. Because I'm on vacation with my kids. We're having, I hope, what will be a memorable time for them. May I ask, if you have kids, or even if you don't, what was the best vacation of your life? So a little story that precedes a more interesting connection question. And just think about that over the course of 15 meetings with a a prospect. Either we're going to say, hi, how are you, and talk about the weather every time. Or every time you meet me, I'm going to ask you a different and interesting connection question, by the time we're 10 meetings in, I'm going to know 10 things about you, and maybe you will know 10 things about me that no other salesperson will know because I had the courage or the habit of asking you a connection question. So all of that's happened in just the first two minutes. There's more to come, of course, but that's an uh, an example of how you can start to sequence these things.
0: How do you – this will happen occasionally – is uh, how do you – How do you do this when the person doesn't open up, when they're pretty reserved, or it's the executive that hops on the call that's just like, not down for small talk, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) What do you do do in those instances where the person's just not really, they're just kind of not having it? Yeah. Well,
1: the first thing I'll say is that there are some people who are just really, really hard to deal with and to have open up. Yeah. My experience has been that they're actually in a very, very small minority. Yeah, And most people who show up like that are people who are happy to have small talk with their friends and family for hours on end without getting bored. But what they're doing is seeing you coming as a salesperson, suspecting you're going to use some kind of Jedi mind tricks on them. And so they're defending themselves. So when you try and use transparent small talk like, ah, I see the picture of your kids on your desk behind you, or I looked on LinkedIn and I see you're a 49ers fan. What do you think of last night's game? It feels a little inauthentic and so is likely to get shut down. But if you're asking out of a genuine curiosity about who they are as a human and you have the courage to either ask permission to do it or just Mm -hmm. take the risk and do it, I think you'll be rewarded more often than, than people expect. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've learned about humans is we're very generous, even to salespeople providers, provided they tell us why they're doing something and they ask permission. So I could say, Jason, I know we've just met. I'd love to ask you what might be a little bit of a personal question. I hope it's okay. May I proceed? And at the very least, you're going to be curious what the question is. So you might say, sure, Andrew, I'm not sure I'll answer it. What do you got?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. The permission-based question. And then the reason why, I think where salespeople run into, I was just working with a rep right before this, and it's when it comes down to, hey, what's the goal that the buyer has? Getting them to kind of quantify. So in my case, it's a sales target or a meeting target or something that they're uh want to accomplish that's related to a business priority. Going down that talk track feels extremely just prescriptive and analytical if you don't explain like why you're asking those questions. And a lot of times for me, it's, you know, hey, as we dig in here, do you mind if I ask you a little bit more about like your the numbers that you're shooting for in the goalposts here? Because I find that implementing a new methodology is a lot of work (laughs) and I want to give you the best recommendation that I can to, to tell you, like, is it going to be worth doing all of this work? You know? And then we kind of dig in there. But I think you just like the reason why, again, it's like, it's such a big, such a big piece of trust building and asking questions and especially around problems. I find too, like one of the things that I always talk about, and I'm curious your take on this too, is, Getting a prospect, someone that's a stranger to admit a problem to you, there's inherent shame in admitting weakness to people that you don't know. So when you ask about big challenges and problems and what they're struggling with, when you don't have a rapport and trust with the prospect, I find that people just don't like to open up about stuff like that. Yeah. And I think it's almost insulting
1: to expect someone to vulnerably expose their problems and concerns and how they feel about it to you who they've only just met, you haven't earned the right for the conversation. And as far as they're concerned, you're a salesperson who's going to use what they tell you against them. So it's a personal bugbear of mine that people rush into discovery without having built trust. And as you say that they don't frame the reason for it. So discovery feels like an interrogation. I got a bunch of questions. I'm going to keep asking them no rhyme or reason, no indication when it's going to stop. And so prospects feel ambushed versus saying, Jason, and maybe labeling what they're, they're worried about. So I might say, Jason, I've been in your shoes with annoying salespeople who just pepper you with a bunch of questions that feels like an interrogation only so they can sell you a product. And I'm committed to not doing that. However... I'm also not committed to vomiting up everything I know about my product when it can do multiple things for multiple people. What I'd really love to do is begin by deeply understanding what you're dealing with now, but also what you dream of or hope you might succeed at in future. And from your point of view, the landscape in between like all the resources you have, the barriers you've got, the, Pathways you were already thinking about taking all of that rich stuff. And finally, I'd love to talk a little bit about the kind of partnership you're looking for, not necessarily with me, but with any company you choose to work with. In order to do that, I've got a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, none of which, and you can count on me for this, none of which are questions the answer to which I could have got with research. And I've done a bunch of that. May I proceed? And that sounds like a mouthful up front, but I've addressed all of their concerns that they're going to be ambushed. This will just be interrogation season. And then I'm asking with an in order to, and the in order to is to sort of get one over on you.
0: Yeah. I love it. Love it. So we talked about picking one habit. Number two was replacing habits. We sort of did that at the same time. Um, So number three, and we can kind of use, I trust, you know, as kind of the example if you want, but it was environment, people, and systems. And what I love about this one is that this is like so much of it is in our control and just decisions that we can make around who we spend time with, the environment that we set up and create for ourselves and the systems. And it's almost, I don't know, the thinking is like, how do you make it like hard not to do the habit? Exactly. Or how do you make it really hard to do the wrong thing? is, is kind of like the, the system that you're engineering. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about that one when it comes to the environment, people, systems, like how we can really set ourselves up for success if we're trying to incorporate storytelling as a habit or trust building or whatever it might be? Yeah. So let's
1: use um, telling a story to handle objections mm-hmm. versus telling customers they're wrong. Let me show you how and why which is how we are sort of our gut reaction is to be defensive when someone has an objection and and to argue with them. And that never goes well. Now a, a shortcut I use for thinking about the places where my habits live, I use the four S's systems, spaces, social, and self, which is my sort of shortcut for mindset. So if I think about the system, one system I can institute to make sure I use stories when I hear an objection is to have a checklist that I review before I going into a meeting that says to me, "If and when you get an objection, be ready with a story, and in fact, anticipate four or five objections and have a story ready." In the context of the physical spaces, I might have a sticket note above my computer. That says, if objection, then story. So it's a yep. physical reminder. Or indeed, I might put on the agenda item one of concerns you might have. Because the expert move that we, we all know is rather than waiting for an objection is to seed it and say, you know, Jason, other customers of, of mine have been concerned about price and budget. May I ask, is that a concern for you? Yeah so that it's raised by us. It shows we are not defensive and it's raised while you're calm rather than you're being angry about it later. Yeah. The other thing I can do in the context of other people, the social context, is I can enroll you, even as my prospect, in how I plan to handle objections. So I can say, Jason, if at any time you've got concerns, Please raise them with me. I would rather you voice them, and I have the opportunity to share how other customers have addressed those concerns, signaling to myself there'll be a story coming when you do. And last but not least, the mindset or the context of the self. I always find it so useful to remind myself objections are a celebration because when someone has an objection that means there's something in the way of them buying they actually want to buy they just can't see how to get over the objection the only person who doesn't raise an objection is a shopper they're not interested so they don't raise objections so it's a reminder to me that objections are a joyful experience and therefore like I should lean in and say "Jason tell me more you're concerned about the price tell me all about it why is it a concern" and that gives a completely different feel so to the habit of handling objections with a story I could have a system that does it. I could have a sticker note or an agenda item that almost makes me do it. I can enroll my customer or have my coach, my manager, watch my call and give me feedback on whether I did it. And I can adopt that mindset that empowers it. Because I think you captured it best earlier. You said the whole idea here is making sure that our environment, systems, spaces, people, and our mindset makes that high-performance trust-building habit the easy default rather than the difficult choice. Yeah. Because for a lot of people, they would say, you know, Andrew, this stuff's obvious. I know to do this. It turns out to be very difficult to do because what our current environment is designed to do is have us do something the opposite.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, do you snowboard or ski? (laughs) <laughs> snowboard a little not well not in the habit of doing so <laughs> okay i just picked up snowboarding with my wife sarah last uh, last season we we try to go a couple times a week and um what i thought of when you brought this up is like you said the easy default i love like thinking about it like that because with snowboarding there's like to learn how to do it. Is you know as you've done it. it's you're like when you're going down a hill really fast you actually need to lean in to like where you're going if you try to fade back which is your natural reaction to do is to like try to get away from where you're going like you'll fall over and i think like on a sales call or any of this kind of stuff it's a very intense experience much like that because it happens in the moment and you need to think on the fly you need to do something that is really the opposite maybe of what you would normally do and it's all of this stuff like Why make it harder than it actually needs to be, you know, down to the environment, like the sticky note on the computer. Um, I love the enrolling the prospect to help you. It's like, I love that. And it's like, I'm a really big fan of permission based openers, like in cold calls, for example. And like when you start a call off like that, like, like you're, you're allowing the prospect to opt into the experience and like you're enrolling them. And you're inviting them to join in on a more customer centric way of, of conducting yourself in this situation. Um, I don't know. I just got my head kind of turning a little bit. Like, what are the other ways that we can make executing, you know, positive habits easier by just enrolling the people around us into those habits? Yeah. Cause that's the, that's the game changers when people around you are like participating in it's this high,
1: thing. You know, it- It's not an overstatement to say that maybe 60% of our behavior every day is entirely or mostly influenced by the people around us. Yeah. And there's wonderful research being done by Christakis and Fowler and others about how catchy habits are from health habits all the way to things like suicide on the other end. It's one of the reasons why we suppress the information when there's a suicide in schools, not because... Administrators are trying to hide the information, but we know that one suicide begets the next. So even crazy, I wouldn't, that's the wrong word, even really sad behavior like that yeah. is contagious through a social network. So you're right. The best thing you can do to be a high performing salesperson is surround yourself with others. It's like anything. If we were going to go and snowboard and you've got a, what I call an accountability buddy, a buddy who going to hold you accountable. And I'm going to be there. And if you don't show up, I'm going to give you hell and you'll feel bad. You're just much more likely to show up.
0: Yeah. No, totally. I think the people thing is, like, if I, if you're listening to this and you're a rep, I think being very proactive about, like, who are the people at your company that really care about the craft and treating it like a profession? You need to be friends with those people, at least at work. <laughs> you yeah. need, like, a pod Uh, You need a little tribe, you know, of people, you need a little squad. Um, So number four was, I forget exactly what it, but what it was that you said, but something around like mindset driving the habit. Um, And do you find that one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Michael Port wrote a book called uh, book yourself solid and it's business problems are really personal problems in disguise. And I love that quote. Right. And where my head kind of went with the mindset is do you find that stuff that people struggle with professionally in sales, let's say, that there's a pretty big parallel with stuff that they struggle with in their personal life and that you can practice one and practice the other kind of at the same time?
1: Yeah, totally. There two things to say about that. One is I often say to participants when we're doing sales workshops, is how you are in this workshop is how you are in life. And i like, no, no, no. When I'm with a customer, I behave this way. I just don't feel like it today. I'm like well, if you don't feel like doing the exercise today, you sure as hell aren't going to be doing it with your prospect tomorrow. Yeah, and I'm of, of the view that sales skills are really just life skills. Because I come from the Kellogg Sales Institute is where I teach at the Kellogg School of Management and my own business habits at work. In both organizations, we believe that to sell is to help another human being make progress in their lives. Mm -hmm. It's not to convince them to buy a product that maybe they didn't need for a price they couldn't afford sooner than that. It's not to meet quota. It's helping another human make progress. It's a very noble thing to do. And So I found that the best salespeople are people who are curiously committed to being in service, even and including if that means not my product. I'll refer you to someone else because I think they'd do a better job for you because all I'm focused on is the North Star of helping you. And I think that people who are committed to serve in life have a very good chance of being successful salespeople. And I think the last thing I'd say is, you know the worst word I think in business is the word experience Mm. because what I found is, is an excuse to stop practicing you now uh, you take your first job you're 21 and all you do is drink through the proverbial fire hose and you're getting feedback from everyone and you're learning quickly and then at some point you say to yourself i've got this and you pretend that i no longer need to practice because i know what i'm doing i'm getting results and i often use the example of driving you know i, I was a bad driver when i was 16 I very quickly became an acceptable driver who knew how to get from point A to point B. But as soon as I figured that out, I started like everyone driving on automatic. You know, that phenomenon where you arrive at work and you can't even remember how you got there? That's automatic experience. And that's so common in business. And I have evidence for this. There are many people who you know, with 30 years experience, who just aren't that good. Yeah. So if there is a sort of master habit below all of this, I would say it is the habit of practicing deliberately with the mindset or the intention of, I want to get really good at this, and doing it with a coach or a peer who can give you the right kind of performance feedback. And if there's one thing I'd, I'd want people to take on in their careers, it's enrolling a partner at work with whom you will practice and to whom you'll give feedback and from whom you'll ask for feedback cuz i don't know any other way as a human being to develop your skill towards mastery than deliberate
0: practice with a coach yeah oof that was a good one this <laughs> mic drop right there um i this concept you brought up again this enrolling it's got me thinking even more like i think so one i I'm forgetting the terminology that we use. I was talking to my wife, Sarah, about this. We're talking, it wasn't weaknesses. It was like uh, something, something along the lines of weaknesses. The weakness, my biggest weakness right now that I identified was asking for help is tough for me sometimes. And it's, I don't, it doesn't come from a place of having too much pride to ask for help. It's that I'm burdening the other person by asking for help. And I think that a lot of people listening to this probably relate to either being afraid to ask for help because they're burdening someone or being afraid to ask for help because it requires me to admit to myself that I could do better in this area and that I need to rely on other people. And when you say enroll the help of others, I'm curious if you have any advice for people that might struggle you know, asking for help. And it sounds so silly when you say, yeah, have a buddy that you practice this stuff with. It's like, duh, yeah, you should do that. But so few people actually do things like that and actually ask people for help. What, what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's a big question. So a few thoughts. The first is there's a lot of mindset work here. And mm-hmm. You've identified two of them. Maybe my mindset is if I ask, I'll expose the fact that I don't know how to do this and that's a vulnerable thing to do. Yeah. Well, if you don't ask and you don't get help, you're going to stay bad at this and that's probably yeah. not going to work for you. So the second mindset you pointed to is, well, I don't want to be a burden, but ask yourself, like, do you, how do you feel when people ask you for help? I'm usually honored, maybe. Flattered. Yeah. I like yeah. the opportunity to help and I'm big and ugly enough that if I can't help you, I don't want to, or I don't have the time, I'll say so. And, I don't ever feel like someone's putting a burden on me by asking. Yeah. It's my it's my time to give or not. Mm-hmm. But I think the third part of this mindset thing might be the game changer, which is it turns out that asking people for help changes their perception of you and you get the benefit of being deemed to be smarter than people who don't ask for help. Which is a really weird result. This was research done by Brooks and Gino out of the Harvard Business School. They discovered that if you ask someone for advice in a domain in which they are an expert, so you saying, Andrew, I need some help on habits. I consider myself to be skilled in that area. I'm yeah. thinking to myself, Jason must be pretty smart because he's asking me for help. It's a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And. I've seen it happen so many times that sellers come into meetings and they they don't want to ask customers questions because they are worried about being exposed as ignorant or they're worried about being a burden or making customers feel like they're being interrogated. But when they choose to take the risk to ask more questions, they not only learn more, which is obvious, people like you more when you ask questions, especially advice-based questions, and they think you're smarter. Like, why would you not do that? So there's lots of benefits to asking people for help, the core one of which is you might actually get the help, but there's a lot around it
0: as well that's worth having. Yeah, I think you nailed it for me, especially as like, do I like being asked for help? Yeah, absolutely. I'm in the business of helping people. That's what a coach does, a sales coach. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, it's uh, my experience you know, it really comes from having a, a parent that was pretty impatient with me is, is where a lot of that kind of stuff comes from, where I did ask for help and it was met with a lot of impatience and resistance. So it's like, I just, that's like the place, you know, that's like the rewiring that I need to do right now. But, uh, I'm curious for you, if, if you're willing to share, what's, what's a habit you're working on right now?
1: Uh, actually good question because three times a year for 108 days, I go on a habit adventure. And I choose a new habit to adopt and a vice to get rid of. And it changes every time. And in fact, this Sunday, I'm starting my next run. The habit I'm taking out is alcohol, love alcohol, drink, you know, often socially. And it doesn't serve me, never has, but increasingly as I get older. And so I like to take at least one, sometimes twice a year, a three-month or 108-day hiatus from alcohol. So that's the one I'm taking out. I've often taken out bits of social media because man, that's junk candy. Oh yeah, yeah. I spend a lot more time on it than I'd like to admit. Yeah, and what yeah.
0: What social media channel? <laughs> uh My,
1: I would say that my good habit is being on LinkedIn. My vice: yeah. scrolling Instagram. I've never posted on Instagram <laughs> I Interact with anyone. But, you know, if it's four in the morning and I can't sleep, I'll just watch silly videos. I think it's like a TikTok thing as well. I'm not on TikTok. Okay. Uh, but the habit I'm adding in is, believe it or not, I, I have become a performance poet. Mm. And so I'm writing and practicing performing poetry as a daily habit. I oh, know wow. it's weird, but I write poetry around habits and sales and business-related things, which you might think is the least poetic subject, but I'm seeing if I can bring a little bit of poetry to the art and science of sales and leadership and habits.
0: Very cool. What's the significance of 108 days?
1: Ah, Thank you for asking. As, as it turns out, two years ago, I went to become a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. There's a backstory that, that I'll spare you. But in, in the process, I sort of fell in love with some of the Hindu mythology. Oh, yeah. And there's a, A concept in there of a mala, which is this uh, 108 uh, repetitions of a a mantra, for example. But I like to break it down into three pieces. 28 days, a lunar month, where I develop the skills of a new habit and get really clear about what it will be. 40 days when I'm sort of in the cocoon of working on the habit myself to really embed it in my body and my brain. And then the last 40 days where I go out and try and teach it to someone else. And the reason I choose that breakdown is, you know, we do a lot of work in mindset. Beginner's mindset and the student mindset and a growth mindset from Carol Dweck. And there's lots of very useful mindsets. Yeah, But the one I love the most is the mindset I call the ultimate teacher mindset. Mm. Which is, if I'm going into a practice session, Most salespeople, me included, go into that session with an eye roll. Done this before. Probably nothing I can learn here. It completely closes you to learning. Versus if I say, at the end of this session with Jason, I will be the only human on the planet with the privilege of teaching everyone else what Jason teaches me. Man, it just opens you up to Learning and also not just learning the subject matter, but learning how I learned and how I might teach it. And it gives you a completely different relationship to the material. So I like when I'm going through a habit process to work on the habit, to internalize the habit, and then to teach the habit.
0: Yeah. Love it. Build, internalize, and teach. That's pretty cool. What, if uh, we got a couple more minutes here, resources, stuff like that? Do you got any favorite books, favorite podcasts on the topic? Um, Any other type of resources that uh, if someone's uh, as big of a nerd as as we are about habits, (laughs) they could go check out?
1: Yes. Well, you know, my my favorite book to recommend is James Clear's Atomic Habits. And I would say that I'm professionally jealous of the book. It's the one I wish I had written. It's extraordinary. I wrote a book myself called The 11th Habit, which is about context design and the particular focus of that book is how to develop what i call the foundation habits below all performance whether it's in sales you know professional sports or professional ballet dancing which is the habits of addressing the three fundamental human needs to be healthy to be happy and to be financially secure but it it illustrates how to think about designing habits into the context of your life um, the power of habits is a good book as well. I, I think it is simple and that's its benefit, but it misses a few nuances of the challenges of creating habits. So those are three of my favorites. Um, top of my head, I can't think of any ha- habit podcasts.
0: I listen to mostly sales podcasts. Yeah. Do you use any, uh, when you're tracking habits, are you like more of a journal type of guy? Do you have an app? I, I like to use, uh, One that I like to use is uh, it's called way of life and it's kind of cool. It's just got like checks and stuff like that where you can, did I do it? Did I not do it? How do you, how do you track stuff?
1: Yeah. I I have tracking apps. I have spreadsheets that I use for some things. Mm -hmm. My golden rule is tracking needs to be frictionless as far as possible. So ideally like wearing a watch that tracks your exercise and I don't have to think about it. Wonderful. Because sometimes the burden of tracking becomes an excuse for people not to do it. Like, I haven't recorded my exercise for three days and you feel defeated by the not recording of it, let alone not doing the exercise and tend to give up. So I'm very careful not to obsess about tracking because what really matters is did I show up? Tracking is useful. I can extract lessons from it and patterns and it does keep me on the treadmill, so to speak, but it's not the be all and end all.
0: Gotcha. Well, this is a great conversation, man. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, we got to bounce. I know you got to run here. Where can people go to connect with you? You're doing a ton of great work at your company. Um, where can people go to connect with you, and learn more about what you're doing, all that good stuff?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Our prep call is awesome. And you're very charming and insightful with your questions. Oh, thank you. Uh, a couple of places. People can find me on LinkedIn. Andrew Sykes and Habits at Work will find that. Uh, My website, business website is habitsatwork.com, all spelled out, so H-A-B-I-T-S-A-T-W-O-R-K.com. I I have a speaking website, andrewsykes.com, for my professional speaking. And, you know, email is always an easy option as well, Andrew at habitsatwork.com. So any of those, um, I welcome people to reach out to me. I share my cell phone number on my LinkedIn profile because I think Sales is an opportunity to help. Why would I not want to be available?
0: Yeah. You're going to get a bunch of cold calls now and a bunch of cold emails.
1: (laughs) (laughs) i got to say, I don't respond to badly made messages on LinkedIn that, hi, Andrew, can we connect? And 13 seconds later, I have a paragraph that I have to read with no curiosity behind the
0: approach. If you're listening to this, go blow up Andrew's uh, LinkedIn. Don't send him any weird, you know, kind of stuff. Personalize it, all that kind of stuff. Um, Cool. It's been great having you on. Appreciate the time.
1: It's been my honor and my privilege. Thank you. And I look forward to staying in touch. Take care.